when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's July 15th, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 493. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Renata Price. Howdy. And producer, Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Does it... Is there a rhyme or reason for when you do or do, don't say producer? Is it just like a feel thing? It's just a feel. Okay. Just a... Is, it, is this Just Ricardo? a vibe. <laughs> uh... No, I mean, now you got me reflecting on it. Um, no, there's not. Yeah. But there might be. Maybe <laughs> you, I do mean something know. by it. Maybe I do mean <laughs> something by it. Maybe it's oh, a little no. message for you to parse. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, listener, you know we love the roguelike deck builder here on Waypoint. <laughs> and, Ren, I understand you've been playing everyone's favorite memefied card game, uh, Gwent, this time presented as Gwent Rogue Mage. Yes. Uh, you wrote an article about it, which people can check out on waypoint.vice.com, uh, but help people get up to speed here. Assuming everyone is broadly familiar with what Gwent is uh, from The Witcher 3, what's what's Rogue Mage doing with it? Um. So I think that Rogue Mage is more of a... It's a development on Gwent, the standalone card game, more than it is Gwent in The Witcher 3, because Gwent in The Witcher 3 is very pared down. And since then, Gwent in its multiplayer standalone Gwent, The Witcher card game, and its uh, single-player expansion, Gwent Thronebreaker, has done the things that collectible card games do, right? There are a lot more card effects, there are a bunch of interactions, etc., etc., etc. You have... A lot of a lot more distinct decks than you would in the like original like Witcher game, right? And eventually, uh, people called for um, more single player content for that game. They released it in the form of Thronebreaker, which is a thirty hour RPG, uh, and then it was critically acclaimed and did terribly um, in terms of actual sales. And so now they have released Rogue Mage, which is a roguelike deck builder that uses the standardized roguelike deck builder format to kind of undercut every single thing that makes the original card game good. Um, <laughs> oh no. Yeah, it is. So first of all, it uses the map structure of roguelike deck builders mm-hmm. um, without any bells or whistles attached to it. You have a big map with a starting point at one location where you do your first battle. And then at the end of that map, after a bunch of different branching paths, they all narrow down into one boss fight. Um, Those branching paths include a couple of nodes, uh, one for battles, one for elite battles, which you can use to upgrade your signature card or your key card for your deck. 
Um, that's the only thing that they really do. Um, event squares, um, which in my experience have only ever given me back energy, um, which is what you use to cast spells, uh, or given me cards. Um, they aren't particularly like interesting choices there. Uh, occasionally you'll get an artifact from them and treasure chests, uh, from which you get artifacts. Um, artifacts, uh, modify your game in some way. Uh, they're the traditional like items you would find in, again, a normal roguelike deck builder. Uh, but their effects feel a lot less significant than they would in other games. I have never found an artifact in Gwent where I was like, oh, hell yeah, time to build my deck around this. Um, which is a very different feeling from something like, um, Monster Train, for example, where if I find a thorn card early in a, like, plant monster run, that is what I am rolling with because I know I can get a guaranteed, like, 60 damage every turn, blah, 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 right? There's actually things to build around, and the cards, those artifact cards, significantly, or artifact items significantly change your playstyle. Gwent's don't. Uh, and then finally, the fourth thing on the board is places of power. Places of power you use to restore your energy. Um, and your energy is, again, what you use to cast spells, which is the final addition they have here. Um, there are a couple of spells that you always have access to uh, in your hand. Um, you can determine those at the beginning of the run, but the starting three spells, uh, one of them deals three damage to an enemy, one of them boosts all of your units by three, uh, and then the final one, uh, just summons, basically lets you do an extra card summon, um, for six energy. So that's kind of the basic toolkit you're given. You're given a starter deck, these three spells, and you're let loose into this standard map. And from there, sorry, I got a little bit like lost in the mechanical uh, description. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so, with those rules, uh, like, where's it going to release into the map? Because, uh, like, it does seem like people love the card game that like releases into a meta game with an overworld. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't seem to have happened here. Because, so let's take something like Slay the Spire for for example, right? In Slay the Spire. Um, there is a pretty binary win-loss in terms of, like, does your run end? But there's degrees of success, right? In Slay the Spire, if I get, if I barely squeak out a fight, say I enter a fight with 65 HP, if I finish that fight with 5 HP, I am, like, I am really hurting and I have to play the rest of my run basically perfectly, right? There are these moments where you run out of resources or you are put in a situation that you could not have predicted and you have to improvise, right? Those are the moments where I think roguelike deck builders really shine, where it is like, okay, cool, I built my deck around X situation and now I am being put in Y situation and I do not have an easy answer to this question. I have to play creatively with the deck that I have built. Um, Gwent does not have that because if you lose a game of Gwent, you are done totally. You am, your run instantaneously ends. Uh, and the only thing that can prevent you from losing in some situations is by spending energy to cast your spells. Um, and the energy to like points required to win conversion is one energy is two points, which makes it every fight feels like an already solved problem because you know the exact amount of resources you can you can you know afford to spend in that particular fight 
Um, if you're on a nine fight map, then you have 270 energy to work with. Um, you just have 270 extra points to spend whenever you want. Uh, and you can basically guarantee wins if you, like, even in fights that you should not be able to, uh, or guarantee easy wins as opposed to wins that actually, like, push your deck to the limits of its abilities. I think this is inherent to, because I was trying to think about this, like, the nature is Gwent. Like, the reason people, like, it's kind of a funny goof in the game is that one, like, yes, in the middle of all the dire context, everyone's always ready to just like throw down cards and play a quick game at Gwent. But also it's that kind of card game where it's like, it's very self-contained and you just like quick in and out with the deck you've got. Uh, and it, it sort of resolves. Do you think there's just something inherent to the nature of the card game that Gwent is that makes attempts to do more with it trickier than it would appear like that, a decent card game is a different thing from a card game that'll scale out into a compelling uh, roguelike. Yeah, I think that is 100% the case here. Um, one of the other problems that Gwent has, I think, in this format is that in a... Take a different CCG, for example. You have health and damage, um, or defense and damage, however you want to organize it, split into two different stats, Right which means that the choice between boosting your unit's attack or boosting their unit's health or damaging an enemy's attack or damaging an enemy's health are all very, very different choices that you are making, right? The problem is that in Gwent, you have a flat point total. Each card has a specific point value that goes up or goes down depending on what you do to it, right? And that flat point value... Um, if you damage an enemy is the exact same as boosting your own card unless the enemy has an effect you want to get rid of. That is not an interesting decision you are making. That is not an interesting question to have because the, there aren't enough things, there aren't enough variables on the board to make interesting decisions around. It is so pared down as to lose strategic depth. Um, I think that main Gwent kind of avoids this problem by being, as you say, fast and also being three rounds. Um, you have to play multiple rounds of Gwent where it's like, ah, I'm going to lose this early round so I can win a later round with this same deck. This game does not have that. Oh, man, you're right, because that's a great point. It's the entire, the real calculation you're making Gwent is when to go all in or cut your losses. That is not even a question here, because the Ouch. answer is always play the best card. Always play the best card because there's never any reason not to. Always play a spell because, again, you have 270 extra points of score that you can just play whenever. Um, to be fair, you can only get six a turn, but that leads to uh, a certain, like, a total of 60 additional points, theoretically, every, any battle. So if you're going into elite battle, you just have to not lose by a 60-point margin. Those margins are wild. <laughs> that is not a difficult thing to do. You can have a dog shit deck and spend a lot of energy and you will be fine. Uh, and then all you have to do is go replenish your energy at a point at a place of power. Um, you can you are guaranteed three places of power over the course of your run, which means in total you have 135 energy to work with, which means 270 extra points. Mm. That's easy math. 
That's a solved <laughs> problem. You have made a game that that is a solved problem. <sighs> that's a yeah. That's a that's a bummer. I was. Your review also made me wonder a bit about Thronebreaker, because um, mm-hmm. like you've heard good things, mm-hmm. um, and like I have been curious. Like it does seem like it. It feels like off the back of Witcher Three's popularity, and mm-hmm. I guess clearly they're trying to also figure this out. There, it ha- there has to be something we can do with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, surely we didn't just rip off uh, Kandatieri for nothing, and. So they're they're trying to answer like what it can turn into, but it does kind of seem like it might be that like it really is a game that exceeds expectations in the context of a mini game inside a, a huge sprawling RPG, mm-hmm. and then you take it outside those environs, and they don't seem to have ready answers for how to make the most of it. Uh, but I'm curious if, like, maybe Thronebreaker simply by, you know, we were talking about this a bit before the show, but, like, throwing a lot of RPG at the problem mm-hmm. uh, may have may have gotten to something. Yeah, I mean, that is what I like about Gor- uh, Gordon Quest or Gordian Quest. Um, uh, the uh, uh, deck builder I talked about previously is that, like, that game understands that if you drag these style of card games out over time you can make them interesting, right? Even a even a relatively basic roguelite, or even a basic relatively basic card game, you can really enhance by giving people the time to make decisions over the course of a run and make a real particular and specific build. And I don't think Gwent, like Rogue Mage, ever asks asks you to do that. Uh, and I think that Thronebreaker could. Because Thronebreaker also has the ability to give you difficult problems. Mm-hmm. Like, give actually be like, okay, cool. You are going to have to make a specific kind of deck for this specific situation. And the kind of roguelike deck builder that Rogue Mage is will not ask you to do that because that would just utterly shut down some. Like, that would be a utter stopping point that you cannot predict, and that would piss people off. Um, And so the ability to... And the necessity to go back and to try new things is something that I think probably helps Thronebreaker extensively. So I guess, you know, on the topic of doing more with something that was that had a different context originally, uh, Kato, you've been going back to Casey's mod uh, for inscription and. I think Natalie, I, Natalie and I only ended up touching on it briefly, uh, but I'm curious what your experience of it has been. Uh, is it unveiled weaknesses of that core card game for you, or has it like revealed deeper richness? Uh, uh, d- deeper richness, and it's also kind of peeled back the moments where the game in its uh, original incarnation was very obviously handing you a win. Uh, mm-hmm. In the original game it wants you to progress after a certain point and it's like hey look at this broken thing <laughs> you can really break the game with this and that's on purpose um and a, a few of those things have been stripped out uh, of Casey's mod which is um essentially the first part of inscription made into an actual roguelike not one that you can progress past um although there's still some weirdness going on so i'm not sure uh in classic inscription style there's you know hidden puzzles still in Leshy's cabin and strange happenings going on, uh, weird glitch cards that will randomly turn into anything every time you draw them. Um, 
there's um is it's it's really fun though to like kind of take some of the mechanics that like let you break open that first that first like section of of inscription and like apply them to a slightly more balanced challenge where like the game is like is aware of what you have at, at, at it feels like more aware of what you have at your disposal and will like you know some of these fights are harder than they that than than the original inscription ever was um unless aside of course from the wall of grizzlies which you and natalie somehow <laughs> blew past um but it um i think it's i think it's really neat it has um challenge modes which are kind of how you progress um through story notes, dev notes, basically Casey mm-hmm. is in in the lore of the game. One of the developers worked on the original inscription, um, and makes a makes this uh, modified version of it to kind of explore and understand why the game seems to be coming alive uh, as they're developing it. Uh, which uh, just I'm still very early in like what those devlogs appear to show but i'm I'm glad there's like there's still interesting it's not just so many people asked for inscription to be a real rogue like that they made a real rogue like it's they're continuing their their pattern of we've got we've got more stories so we've got more you know tricks up our sleeves um and like uh yeah th- there's like definitely been runs where i've made a thing that i think is like this would get me through the original inscription part one all the way like a, a mantis god with two 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 attack and three health and fucking uh like un unkillable on it which is a one hit one turn one kill right like i can drop that if i if i draw it on turn one that will kill leshy in one hit um but you know he's he's kind of pulling some of those tricks as well which is which is fun to try to puzzle out you know um because i do think ultimately inscription does a really good job of being a sort of interesting math problem mm-hmm. um a lot of times when you play certain types of these card games um you can get easily lost in like looking at board state uh versus life totals and the kind of back and forth that inscription has on life totals actually kind of makes for really fun like oh they don't have enough to kill me in this turn i don't have yeah. to i don't have to deal with that i'm, I'm gonna draw into i'm gonna keep drawing because i know one or two cards in like my, my deck is still small i know that mm-hmm. mantis god's in there and i'll be fine <laughs> right mm-hmm. and um there's yeah there's just a lot of fun levers to pull on in that game of like all right now i can uh you know buff this card to hell or put that sigil on a different card and like i had a flying wolf that had bifurcated strike once that was killer and just like it's there's still a lot of really fun experimentation happening even if you've played through the entire the entirety of the main game so The other thing I was curious about was whether or not the lack of the metagame would suddenly sort of like unveil that 
okay, well, a huge part of this was just the ARG and like just the vibe of being in this world trying to figure out what these mysteries are, but so much of that's been revealed. Yeah. Um, does it, does the absence of that, like, I mean, I, obviously there's, there's still stuff with like, you know, as you said, more mysteries to reveal. There's still like hints of what's to come, but what you're not going to do is, is go through the whole like saga that we went through with like the lucky Carter, uh, no. and, and such. Yeah. And, I, and I'm curious, like if that also ends up, that ends up like feeling like a ever present absence, uh, as you sort of return to the game. Well, no, cause basically you're replacing those, those videos with with kind of Casey's view on on mm. what is happening, right? Like that that's kind of the exact thing is like you're un- you're still uncovering story around this game and it's like I it's more cut and dry as to how you receive it, right? Like you just have to win yeah. win runs um and win runs of higher uh difficulties. There's a stacking sort of difficulty where you have um modifiers uh like for example the game state basically drops you into late late section one, late Leshy's Cabin inscription, which means there's a lot of things that the game normally slowly doles out over multiple deaths. And this one, it just starts from the beginning. Like you're, you're immediately seeing the woodcarver that gives you totems. You're immediately seeing the mycologist, which uh, will meld cards. Like those sorts of things you wouldn't see until like four, three or four deaths in to the regular inscription game. It all starts it starts with all of those things that would normally unlock over time, which means there's like a, all immediately a much wider variance of like things you can play with and do. But also there's um these modifiers where like uh one of them that's really kind of easy is like for example the trader where you can trade in teeth that you get from doing overkill damage on mm-hmm. on fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trader will cost uh, a bunch more money for pelts, but it 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 um fills up this uh um what's it called? I guess it's difficulty score. Basically, each run you have to you have to, you have to pick a set of mods that add adds up to the current difficulty score. It starts you out at like ten, which means it's like two mods of five each. And as you go, you unlock certain mods that are worth more points, but are much more difficult. So. One is like you only get uh two items in your pack. You can never carry three. Mm-hmm. Um the one I have going right now that's worth like fifteen difficulty points is every boss battle is a totem battle. Um still trying to work through <laughs> getting through that because it's surprisingly rough when you add on top of the regular boss mechanics, you add uh a, a tribe totem that, you know. They're almost always good ones. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like they're a little more tilted towards the ones that are useful than great. I ran into the woodcarver and I got stinky again. It's like, I don't need everything to be stinky. I want my fucking mantis <laughs> god to fly, please. <laughs> um, oh, I made my card stinky. <laughs> my card smell. Oh. Um, but yeah, this kind of scaling and also customizable difficulty has been really fun to play around with. There's also like, like I think I might actually, for the current difficulty level that I'm on, I might go back and take off the totem battles and just pick, th- like, I think three of the lower ones will get me there um, and see how I fare with that. Because some of the lower ones are like, eh, not too bad. Like, oh, I don't care about having the angler's hook at the beginning. I rarely used it. Uh, I don't care about buying too many pelts so i'm just gonna you know basically forego overkill damage and just 
focus on getting through because more than once it feels like a lot more than I think the original runs through I was having I've gotten I've I've, I've been squeaking by on just hitting exactly the five damage I need to 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 survive and next turn would have been a total wash if if I hadn't hit exactly five you know um and uh I think it's kind of a testament to how aware and balanced uh the dev can actually make things like seeing the swing from like oh i'm breaking this game to like oh no he was letting me break the game <laughs> like very obviously yeah. letting me break the game uh is really fun and also you know uh stepping up to the new challenge has been really really neat that's exceptionally everything you've said it reads as exceptionally clever to me yeah um, it's it's really good to hear all of this i think yeah i'm excited to play more like immediately <laughs> like well until i have something new to distract me like this is gonna be my small it's also like you know it's inscription you can play the each battle is like can be up to two seconds like super quick like it's so bite-sized that i've found myself you know playing 10 minutes here five minutes there and it it really fits that mold really i wonder if it runs on a i wonder if it runs on a steam deck oh no I don't have a Steam Deck, but I feel like somebody out there with a Steam Deck might have might be <laughs> getting into some trouble with that game because uh, that seems perfect for us. Just like pick up and play a couple, play a couple battles and and move on. Situation. <laughs> I I actually am I'm really happy to hear about the specific kinds of limitations you were talking about in terms of its difficulty scaling. Uh, most roguelikes, most de- roguelike deck builders take on the slay the spire monster train esque different difficulty levels just add on pretty small modifiers pretty mm. insignificant modifiers usually they'll be like oh enemies have a little bit of extra health or elite enemies are going to hit you for a little bit more damage and it's like okay yeah that's that's fine that's going to make the run harder yeah. but it's not going to change how i'm going to build things and it right. sounds like the modifiers that they're using in casey's mod are pushing you to build differently yes. and play different and that is extremely exciting yeah. to me it definitely drives the the path cho- choices that you make because one one of them is for example you know the clover which would allow you when you get a random choice of three cards uh in this game you have a little clover if you don't like any of the three you can re-roll once and get a new set of three um that is an option of a mod just like you don't have the clover at all which means every time you get uh one you hit one of those nodes on the map you're only going to have that first set of three and i found actually the clover to be very very like much more useful than i feel like i i I thought it was during the main game of just like look none of this works i am building towards a thing and none of this works i need to re-rack and oftentimes i will hit it on the second run and it's really useful um but taking that away can also be uh, uh you know it's a good way to be like okay well i'm just gonna play i'm gonna play it as it lies and see how far i can get right um yeah, there's lots of those those things, those choices that they're pulling on the levers that the devs decided to pull on, I think are really clever and make for really interesting uh, variants of choices as you do different runs. Nice. That's really good to hear. Uh, so just a change of gears here. Uh, what I've been playing this week, uh, well, actually it was a week or so ago. Um, I played a bit more of Company of Heroes 3. Uh, which is the like third installment of the RTS, RTS series from Relic. Uh, this week they announced it's coming out in November, and they revealed a new faction, uh, the Africa Corps. 
They also revealed a new campaign that's built around that faction. And I had a chance to play a mission uh, for it and mess around with Rommel's army on a new desert map. And the thing, I'll, the thing I'll say is it's tough to glean much about a faction from like what felt like a tutorial mission. I guess the mm. kind of the, the big headliner thing here is that. So the main, it seems like the main campaign in uh Company of Heroes 3 is going to be sort of a Total War style map uh, covering the invasion of Italy, uh, you know, by by the Allies. But then there's going to be like a linear, more traditional RTS campaign that takes place in the North African uh, theater. Uh, And so the obviously the Africa Corps will be sort of a, a headline part of that. The. The thing is, like the, it seems like the identity for the faction, uh, the sort of hook they built is this idea that, you know, as you, as you might expect from how this like army tends to be remembered, uh, it's all like it's all mobility, uh, it's all about tanks, 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 and obviously, like in a tutorial mission about them, they're going to be made to feel really awesome and powerful, and you're just going to get to play around with everything they can do, uh. One thing that did sort of jump out at them, uh, out about them, is that it seems like sort of core to their faction identity is the notion that they can just keep fighting and moving. Uh, like every unit can see, like not every unit, but a ton of their infantry um, are capable of carrying out like field repairs uh, on vehicles. So you don't need to like bring in special engineering units to do it. Uh, but if they do have specialized engineering units uh, to fix up tanks, they can restore their forces to like pristine order really, really fast. Uh, and so the idea is that like once this faction gets on a roll, they can kind of keep moving and showing up wherever, uh, basically back at full strength. So you sort of you, you sort of punch them and they come bouncing back up, uh, you know, back to back to uh, max strength like you last fought them. Meanwhile, everybody else takes a little more time to regather themselves and uh, sort of lick their wounds. The trade-off is that they really don't have a lot of the infantry and support units that a lot of the other factions do. Um, so, th- like, the, the whole game is kind of microing these little armored death balls around the map is <laughs> is kind of how it looks um i also kind of felt like where they might have balanced this a little bit is that they they repair really fast but they all felt a little squishy mm. and so it's not like it is is they're not like a nimble heavyweight, right? It's mm-hmm. it's they they are fielding a bunch of like lighter units, and so if they get overmatched, like a uh, it seems like a fat uh, a fight could really turn quickly uh, on them. Um, the the new map type uh, was the desert, uh, which is you know as you might expect, it's it's way more open, it's way more of a tank friendly uh, setting as opposed to what they've done with a lot of the Italy maps, which is uh, really d- really dense with like you know terrain features uh sort of terraced maps with uh like really stark elevation changes it was it was like it was cool i'm like i I came out of it wanting to play way more with this with this faction it was a really interesting uh faction but i also couldn't quite get at well what are they going to like 
they were they were handed such lopsided challenges in this tutorial mission that was like okay i'm really like i just need to see this in a skirmish mode Mm -hmm. to understand like how this is going to match up at all uh because here they've been really set up to succeed and they're fun to play uh in that context um one thing i'll note is like one thing that they seem uniquely good at compared to other factions is they can like deploy smoke screens uh like pretty much anywhere uh really accurately and easily whereas like everyone else sort of has to take a minute to dial up smoke screens from like off map artillery um like the Africa Corps seems very good at they can sort of just set a line of sight blocking screen to advance around um or they can quickly sort of pop smoke and run like hell so uh, that that ended up being a pretty huge advantage as well, which was this notion that you can at will kind of redraw the line of sight uh, map uh, that, that's sort of surrounding you. Um, I am curious what they're going to do with. There's kind of two things from the from the history side of this that that weigh on it. Uh, one is that the in terms of what people tend to like from RTSs, right? It's like, man, I want to see those late game units. I want the biggest, heaviest shit possible. That you know, where's my, uh, where, where's my tiger tanks and such. And the the funny thing about the Africa Corps is that this is a army that basically fought with the technology that existed before the war actually began. So it was all like light tanks and kind of second rate equipment uh, for the the entirety of the formation's existence. Um, so I'm actually kind of curious to see how they kind of balance this notion of in the real world, if a Panzer three tank gets in a shootout with a like gotten a shootout with a Sherman, the Sherman pretty like the arrival of the Sherman basically ended the Panzer three as as a thing that could exist on the battlefield. Um, but in RTS, you know, the faction identity has to be viable in all kinds of matchups. So I'm, I'm curious how they're going to balance this notion of like. Mm. It's a famous army, but all their equipment sucked. You're gonna be playing around with the equipment. Are they like are they going to capture the notion that the equipment was bad and didn't really scale into the war, but then they have other powers to keep them competitive? I don't know. Uh, but it's it's an interesting thing to see how they're gonna navigate. The other part of it is as far as like navigating it is just the Africa Corps and the war in North Africa ends up surrounded in a lot of myth. Um it is like it, the, the Africa Corps is a sort of a cornerstone of the clean Wehrmacht uh, like story. And so that's that's another aspect of this that I'm curious what they're going to do in the in, in the campaign uh, that they're that they're going to create around this. Uh, where, like, what are you going to bring across about their place in history? Uh, you know what they what they sort of stand for and, and, and to, to what degree are you going to engage with some of the myth busting uh, that, that's happened around, around that campaign. So uh, I did have a chance to chat with two of the dev team, uh, Matt Phillip and Will Ward over on the uh, Thrums Ahead podcast. Um, so like, if, you, if you do want to hear more on this or a brief aside about why limbering and unlimbering animations are just an absolute gateway to hell in game development, um check that out on idlethumbs.net uh but yeah like i i I came out of this like company of heroes 3 is such a game of disparate parts that i'm 
as a fan of the series, I'm really excited for when it comes out in November, but also I do sometimes look at it as there's a little something for everyone, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if there's going to be a lack of cohesiveness in terms Mm -hmm. of like what the value proposition is that's going to hamstring it a bit. Rob, you mentioned, I've been thinking about something you said for a little bit. Um, You said this is a fun faction to steamroll with. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. Do you think they will be a fun faction to lose as? Because to me, that is like the, the defining principle of a good faction in a video game is if they are like one, ask you to make interesting decisions but two even when you take an l you're like that was pretty sick though i got i got absolutely ravaged here but i did it in a sick way that was like engaging for me do you think this is going to be one of those factions that will be fun to lose as i think so um you know when i was talking to uh like uh matt and will about this they they tend to think about all their factions as also being tailored to a certain archetype of uh, RTS player. Mm -hmm. And this faction is sort of, they've already made a faction like this before in company of heroes one. I think it was the Panzer elite faction sort of a similar, a similar vibe, but they've, they've always sort of identified factions like this as sort of being more on the high APM, high skill ceiling type of, uh, like spectrum of things for for players and i think where it will be fun to lose as this faction like so you hear me talking about a low skill player i'm like oh they run fun death balls mm-hmm. i think where it's going to be fun for someone who's good with them is that you can force people to play whack-a-mole and mm. you're going to constantly be getting into their back line and constantly because company of heroes is a game where if you control forward resource points, but the backline resource connections are taken by the enemy, you don't collect any resources off the front line. You need a contiguous territory uh, to trace back to your HQ. So this faction, like in someone in, in a good player's hands, my suspicion is it won't be like one death ball running around. It will be like multiple tiny little like snowballs rolling down a hill. Uh, and just raising a ruckus. And I think even when you're losing, I think probably this faction will be set up to make it feel like you can buy yourself enough breathing room to maybe claw your way back into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I can, I can see where it would, I, I can sort of see how that'll play out. Uh, and I do think it'll be fun for the people who sort of master how this faction works. I think if you don't, I feel like if you probably don't end up having the knack for it, um, like I suspect I won't play this faction because I don't think I'll be able to juggle that many aggressive like counterplays uh, to keep myself in these games. And also I won't be able to micro around the squishiness and the uh, repairability Mm -hmm. of my units. So like Mm -hmm. I tend to like really positional factions where it's like, here's my unit roster here we are in a good position and now we're just going to slowly like crawl like steamroll through the map uh i think if you try to play that way with this faction you will just get walloped uh until Mm -hmm. you like don't have units left Mm -hmm. but yeah if you're willing to sort of like juggle swords uh i suspect it'll be a hell of a lot of fun Mm -hmm. it sounds got it like the zerg there's a bit of that i think mobile micro heavy situation you know there 
it's not a bad comparison, especially because it did sort of seem like there's like a swarming quality to way the, the, the like groups work where you'll have a couple tanks as sort of the centerpiece of it, uh, throwing down smoke and area of effect for other units. The infantry will be there to sort of shoot it out and deal with other infantry, but also they're there to keep the motherships like healthy and working. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think there's, I do think there's something to that where, uh, you're you're going to rather than being up against one unit, it's almost like the little control groups that uh the yeah. Africa Corps is going to be using will be like little organisms in themselves. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think I think they could end up being very very cool. And I say I don't think I'll be good at them. I don't think I'll be very good at them. I think I'll play them a lot. <laughs> you know, I was right. I've been yeah. meaning to ask. You mentioned um very micro heavy faction, right? And I think the thing I, I find curious, and you mentioned that you are a more positional player, is that a positional player in terms of how you like to think t- tactically? Or is that an is that an aff- like an effect of your disinterest in micro, like as a style of control? It's a bit of both. Like I do love like I love a really well set up machine that will then mm-hmm. just whoop ass, right? Like I think mm-hmm. You know, when we were playing Warhammer, Cafe is basically perfect for me because if you can optimize the layout of that army, um, they will just slaughter everything that comes near them. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's really fun to just watch the fireworks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, aesthetically, I tend to prefer playing that way and, like, figuring out how to take advantage of, like, the level or map layout mm-hmm. to take advantage of factions like that. But also it is a recognition that the thing I am not going to be good at is issuing a high rate of effective commands to a bunch of different units to make them all like tap dance uh, through the battle, do the exact right things, the exact right moment. Anything that requires that level of precision will fall apart for me. Mm-hmm. So I tend to prefer like slightly more rugged, uh, less attention intensive armies. Mm-hmm. I guess as someone who is, as someone who's not played many RTSs, uh, no. but who likes really like who likes tactical thinking, is is the is the reality just that like RTSs will always be too micro heavy for me, and I should just stick to tactics games? Or is there an RTS? Do you think that has a level of tactical play that is not position oriented, or that is like not army like makeup oriented and is built around like okay, cool, are you making the right play at the right time in terms of like moving? moving your troops around that is not like uber micro heavy. Yeah, no, I think there's, I, I think there's a few. Um, so ironically, like one of the things I immediately jumped to in my head is uh, really kind of not an RTS at all. It was a almost a, it was almost a MOBA, uh, the world in conflict game, uh, which was this cold war, uh, this cold war game where the idea was that, Every player on a team would like be one branch of arms. So there'd be like support, there'd be your armor player, your uh like air player, like your infantry. And the and the idea was that like they would share some common pools of units, but then they would have like specialized uh unit selection. And that was entirely about you'd be handed a very small, manageable roster of units, uh, and sort of told to control them. Uh, you know, 
efficiently through the match. And then the thing that was really more timing based was as you fought, you would build, you basically build meter and you could spend meter on, you could spend it on a lot of like lower level support abilities just to buff up your units or like, Oh, call in a quick artillery strike to just like maybe bust up some infantry. It's getting too close. But if you waited till the meter was full, you could drop a nuclear bomb on the map. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, and that, and that's the, by the way, like world in conflict is awesome, but you do have to just divide in your head. You're like, as the meter fills, the list of things you can do that are just out and out war crimes, like fills with it. And the thing you have to do is be like, you know, if you think about it, cluster munitions are really awesome on a battlefield Jeez. if you're dealing with like right. dense formations of armor. <laughs> the problem with cluster formations, obviously, is that they tend to linger uh, for ages and then <laughs> blow up when there's no more battle uh, around. But World in Conflict is is very much like, but these things are pretty spectacular uh, to like look at. And that game, boy, that game fucking delivered on the spectacle, <laughs> man. Uh, so that's Wait, that's so that's one that kind of fills the uh, fits the bill. I think a game like Homeworld Deserts of Karak might work for you because it's a bit like it's not that there's no micro playing out units efficiently is good. Finding good like tactical positions is good, um, and also just a really good vibes based RTS. Uh, that's one I tend to. It's got a great campaign. Um, and I think that's the other thing is I talked to, uh, God, Chris Taylor, who developed, um, total annihilation ages and ages ago. And he was like, I feel like our entire genre, every designer in the genre was like, okay, we hear you players. What you love is big, lavish, story, rich, single player RTS campaigns. And here you go. A delicately balanced competitive RTS experience, <laughs> uh, and that, and I think that's fundamentally true. And I, and I think uh, what a lot of developers have kind of come back around to is this notion that, like, the multiplayer game is your long tail, and it can if if you break through, the game will be effectively immortal. Uh, if a campaign, if players like stick stick with it for years and years, but. To get a lot of people in the door, you got to give them both a fun experience thing to play by themselves without like getting good. Uh, and it's got to be like cool enough and interesting enough that it doesn't feel just like a warm up act uh, for the multiplayer. Okay, but Ren, here's the real thing. I've only played this a little bit. Yeah. Like, no, Rob, it's okay. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Come in. Hey. How I've open opened, to being canceled are you? Uh, oh, listen, Rob, I'll. <laughs> I'll say anything into a microphone. Don't think I won't. <laughs> so the issue, one of the best, and Kato, get in on, get in on this with us. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Kato, get, right. right. get in here. Come on, get in, get in here, Kato. What's up? Why okay. are we huddling? How many slurs are in the title? <laughs> well, none in the title, but in the <laughs> yeah. open public chat, oh, uh, no. it is extensive. Uh, so I'm talking well, there's, about Eugen there's systems. <laughs> there's your problem right there. Open, open public chat. <laughs> well, you like believe me. If you want to talk about like <laughs> instant L, <laughs> Eugen Systems makes amazing real time strategy games. Also, 
many allegations of being just a horrendous working environment. Like Ugh. not like not necessarily like quantic dream bad, but just like total project mismanagement and everyone mm. paying the price uh for it. Mm. Um and then they make uh god what is it? Uh is it literally just called it's not it's not the war game series the Cold War series. Uh Steel Division is the World War II game. And Steel Division, so that thing I was just telling you about uh, World in Conflict, Steel Division is real-time tactics where everyone controls a division from the war. And what they kind of do is they're like some divisions had a reputation for having like just the best tanks and armor. And some divisions, and I am like a moth to flame with these things, have a reputation for just having shit. But some really interesting, goofy abilities. So, like, yes, it is true that, like, if you want all the, like, heaviest, most impervious tanks that the Germans fielded during uh, World War II, regrettably, you're going to have to go play a Waffen-SS division. Um, but if you, like, you know what was cool? Big old World War One style artillery barrages. Well, let me tell you about the Hungarian army, which doesn't have tanks. They have horses, and they have, and some of those horses Sorry, are they pulling. They have, they have what when? <laughs> they have what when? And some of those what, horses when? are pulling, uh, like massive Big Bertha size artillery pieces that fire like twenty five centimeter shells. <laughs> And if you all form up on a team, there's kind of two approaches you can take. It's like, you know, we'll all fight our separate battle. Like, I'll have this sector. You have this sector. And, you know, you take the right. Or you can do a thing where, hey, my division isn't really good at the whole front line fighting. If you want fighting, we're not good at it. <laughs> but we do have a lot of artillery. And if you just want somebody to sit back here. That was here, a bad slogan. <laughs> if you just want somebody to sit here and like drop artillery rounds where you need them i can play that too uh and so i can sort of play as support player um and those games like you can play the the hyper micro heavy game uh especially because there are divisions where like the entire name of the game is advance quickly with tanks and infantry riding around like armored vehicles mm -hmm. but the armored vehicles are too valuable to waste and so you need them to like roll up take ground disembark kick ass everyone back on the truck keep moving that is a lot of commands you need to give at a time i'm more at the pace of oh that looks like some that looks like a big group of enemies coming at me I will queue up artillery fire all along their line of advance, just blast the shit out of them. And now I'm just going to watch my artillery blast the shit out of them. And that's a lot of fun. <laughs> but the issue, like in addition, like the issue with Eugen is yes, uh, by reputation, not a, not a good studio uh, to work at. And then they never cleaned up their community at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, like made the calculation that, if we get the Wearaboos out of here, um, we're going to lose a huge portion of our audience. And so they like, if you like, to be fair, awesome Soviet and U.S. and Commonwealth units are in the game as well. You can play with those. But at the same time, it's like 
their fans will be like, man, I really hope you get the Liebstand art division, right? And they're like, don't worry, we do. And we got you your favorite hero units, notorious Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. Kicking and falling and falling down the stairs and dying and bleeding. (laughs) It's like, it is a, it's probably like, it is a hell of a multiplayer game. Uh, like it is probably the one I've played the most in the last like four years, but also it's like the minute you log in, you're just like, okay, time to mute public chat, uh, because somebody's talking about like, uh, you know how it's really just too unfortunate that uh, Hitler wasn't able to stop Stalin, and it's like, cool, all right, I'm done with this conversation. What are the size of teams? Teams can be huge. Teams like, can be huge. Huge. Okay. Like, like, what's the number? Uh, I think it. I don't think it goes up to. I don't think they have sixteen. I think it's like eight player games. Okay. Um, but it might be. It might be twelve player games. So a total of sixteen players. Yeah, it's, I think it. I think it. I think it might top out at sixteen. It might top out at twelve. Uh, but the maps can get huge. The amount of stuff that players are coordinating and doing can get really hectic. Mm-hmm. And I think something else I dig about it is that this design I've sort of sketched out for you. Um, oh, they did one other cool thing. The game unfolds in three phases. So phase A is the idea that like it's the first like light units and reconnaissance units reaching the battlefield. And then you go up through B and then phase C, the end game is where everyone's bringing out their heaviest shit. But you can, you can get like, elite late game stuff out on the field in phase a it just means that it occupies a card slot sorry your armies are built like decks oh, um, it just occupies oh, a slot in phase a god damn it <laughs> and so like if you save that card for phase c you would get like eight first rate tanks and they would just be like a steamroller in phase c but what if you just felt like you could do way more with just one of those tanks in phase a when nobody else has anything on the board to like Mm -hmm. really deal with it like maybe you with your tactical acumen your ability to micro could basically win the battle on that one tank and by the time phase b rolled over and the enemy had something to answer it with they'd be fucked their position would be like devastated um so you can make those calculations as well so this is kind of how the game the game kind of throws up its hands at balance and is like it's not gonna be balanced but you kind of choose what balance you want your forces to have um, and what car- what profile you want them to have throughout the like ebb and flow of a battle. It's really, uh, it'd be a really good stream game. That sounds mm. really good. I wish it was, I wish the other parts weren't true. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. This is, you this see, is the hell. Did you see the recent thing? The oh, Was there more horrible Eugen stuff? No, no, uh, the, the recent game, I mean, uh, I, I escapes that because there's no Nazis. Oh, war now. War now. You just, you're America or the communists. I would, that's great. I'm going to be the communists. Give me that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't figure out why it, like, it reminds me so much of their war game. Like, they made the war game series, which was mm-hmm. a Cold War series that basically, uh, had a bunch of the stuff and it just doesn't seem i guess maybe is, is warno bringing in the uh sort of the escalation stuff from 
steel division i don't know uh but yeah i, I do think in so- the, the weird thing is in some ways the cold war stuff is less icky to deal with right uh because these are armies that never really fought and they don't have like fucked up fandoms around them in the well, same way in the same way yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh i mean the u.s army has a fucked up fandom yeah it's, it's called living in the united states <laughs> uh yeah so i um just at some point you know, we'll we'll mm-hmm. put we'll put we'll put the appropriate warnings on, and maybe we'll all hold hands, <laughs> and we will we will dive in, uh, and and just see the kind of teamwork uh, we can we can produce. It is, mm-hmm. th- but yes, this is the hell. It's like it is a really interesting game, but also like the conditions under which it was made, bad, uh, and then until you mute the chat, you cannot be but reminded that you share the space with people's whose values are like fucking appalling. And mm-hmm. like for you, it's an interesting, like historical, like tactical sandbox. And you're like, Hmm, what shall I do on this beautiful chessboard? And then across the table, somebody's furiously masturbating onto it, and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, "I really just, Christ. I really just wanted to." Wow! Oh, that's a vivid image, Rob. <laughs> oh, but that's that's war gaming. I to be see clear. why like, you're a writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yep. Uh, so that's real way with words, Christ. Uh, anyway, um, now that I've given you that regrettable image. Uh, and also I basically told you, uh, giving you an ad read for three MA, um, <laughs> idle thumbs.net patreon.com patreon.com slash three MA. Uh, it's time for you to hear some other ads so we can pay some bills around here back after this. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. All right, listeners. I've noticed something of late. It almost seems as if people are getting discouraged from emailing. Perhaps thinking that we won't ever read or engage with good questions or comments on air. I don't know where you get such an idea, but (laughs) we're going to correct it today with a long slorp from the question bucket. Now, slorp. Yeah, well, you know, slorp. Come on, everybody. Take a take a big old sippy. 
<laughs> well, slurp is more the sound like where you just like yeah. got your head in there using your tongue to like sort of pull it into yeah. like, yeah. right, like a dog. horse is slurp at the trough. <laughs> yeah, or a dog. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's what we're doing here. Uh. Come on, you rabid dog. <laughs> so buckle up, uh, because a bunch of these emails are detailed and thoughtful replies, almost too much so, to passing questions or comments we must have raised months ago, I assume. <laughs> That nobody remembers anymore. I'm sure we asked this at one point. <laughs> but they have been burning a hole in the bucket because they are just too damned good to ignore. Now, remember, you can send us all your questions at questions at vice.com with the no. subject. What? You're right. No. <laughs> That's not the email. I forget what the email is. Gaming at vice.com with questions Wait, in the, the subject bat, in the subject title so that it, you it know, gets the filters right. Good good catch, Kato. What's that email again? <laughs> Gaming at vice.com. Gaming at vice.com. <laughs> Where we work. That's Anyway. We have access to that still, right? Yeah, we do. That's the one we always <laughs> say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With today's hearty pull from the bucket, we will definitely need more of those questions. So, so send them on in. To start us off, let's start with something easy. Okay. It's kind of we, got a little, we got a little email from Waz here. Yeah, Waz. Dear Waypoint, do you keep your board games in their original boxes? I saw today a suggestion of buying plastic storage containers for storing board games as a, as a safe spacing measure. And while I will agree it does save space, I'm left in awe of the idea of then throwing away the original box. I consider the box to be a key part of the board game, even if that original box is a terrible design that you will never get the pieces back into. <laughs> and my IKEA cube shelf of board games would look much less charming without the actual boxes. Mm. I personally put this up there. People who keep their DVDs and Blu-rays in a binder and toss away the case. Oh Part God. of the appeal is the case. So how do you store your board games? And are you on board with the idea of getting rid of the original boxes to save space? I, uh, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't even do that with Gunpla. Ostensibly a thing which, once it's finished making, you can throw the box away. But there's such good art on the boxes. And yeah. so there's a stack of finished Gunpla boxes sitting in my room right now. I just haven't been able to be like, hey, this is done. I finished it. The Gunpla is on a shelf. I can throw away this box. Even more so for, for board games, I feel like. I don't know. Most of the ones I have, I guess, the pieces fit well. And I wouldn't want to, like, just toss them into, like, a little bin. There's also those, um... Uh... There's, there's like, places that will make fancy inserts. Which is, I think, often well, the Well, in the world of board games, there's places that will make anything yeah. that you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you have access to a laser cutter and some balsa wood, you can get creative. God, I wish I had a laser cutter. Oh, every day I wake up and say, what if I had access to a machine shop? This is neither here nor there, as you were saying. <laughs> uh, and I feel like I would go to that first. I would go to, like, finding a way to reuse the box because I don't want to throw away the, the box with the art on it. Um, although this isn't an issue for me yet. I feel like there will become a time when... There's one box too many, and I will have to start making decisions, but... How the fuck is it not an issue when you, like, bought out <laughs> the entire run of Bloodborne? 
because I was the last one. Also, I didn't get the entire run. I got the half. I got the half. <laughs> I got the half calf. Uh, I had the the smaller run, but that's kind of the that's the big one. I don't have many others. I have so X Wing, the the miniatures game in in a nice yeah, box. Yeah. That's that's good. I have. I had I had Zombicide, which. Um, was one of the same company that did the Bloodborne game actually, uh, Cool Mini or not, one of their early like Kickstarter. Oh, well, tr- truly games. one of their breakthroughs to realize that people will just you put minis you out, just put and minis, like, and oh damn, that mini here, looks cool. Take my money, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of it. Oh, Carcassonne's over there, I guess. But that's a small box. I don't have many. I don't have a ton of big ones other than the the biggest one. Truly is uh, Bloodborne. Which is a mistake. Um, I will throw away any box. Uh, I will throw away boxes that I need. Wow. <laughs> uh, I will the spe- the speed with which I this will kind of dispose of a box is is even like astounding. a even like a good cardboard one where it's like, damn, that'd make a good moving box someday. You don't put that in a in a closet somewhere? Cause I do. No. <laughs> Avocado. I, what? <laughs> I have, I have, I have a little space in my closet that is just like, here's a bunch of boxes that are good sizes, and either they get used for shipping things around or for moving or for yeah, yeah, quick, whatever. I got a quick question, bro. Yeah. Question. When did you move <laughs> in your place? I moved. Well, here's the thing. I also. Well, here's the thing. Uh, no, I just I ask you a question. Okay, Shout well, out. I have a corollary. After I give you this answer, I have a corollary. Okay, <laughs> but I moved here in 2014. So do that math real quick. Seven, eight years. You have lived there longer than I have ever lived in a place. <laughs> like, wait, really? Short of my childhood home. Damn, nice. Um, however, I moved mm-hmm. here in 2014 as an as an artist at an art school with a studio and a studio space, and the eternal uh, curse of oh. the artist is to be moving studio spaces constantly as rents change and prices and your ability to pay studio rent outside of your house changes. So it's just a holder from over from that mostly. And also, I do keep... It has shifted from big moving boxes to a lot of smaller boxes just to kind of ship things in. Uh, I... I do the thing where I sell like cards of games I play and you usually just need a small box for that. Yeah. And I'd rather not pay the like whatever five bucks at the store to get no, a new I, a new box, you know? So I get you. I just like so I so the thing is the reason I react so vehemently to that is also <laughs> it is like a deeper expression of something I also do. Hmm. But like I know that I hate this about myself and then I hear someone <laughs> doing the worst version and I'm like, well, I can at least like, okay, we can at least agree that this is wrong uh, because so we don't keep the good moving boxes around as much anymore. There was mm-hmm. a period where it was like, man, this sturdy trooper, uh, you know, you throw a few pieces of gaffer's tape across it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, suddenly this thing can, can bear a ton of uh, weight as we, yeah. as we move around. Oh, Monitors and TV boxes, those always stay, no matter what. One day I will so have to we, transport them. <laughs> we, yeah, this, is, but they're too big. Like, they're no, just they too are, fucking they are, they big. There's too big. much packaging. <laughs> like, what makes big. them work is it's like the, the molded styrofoam. The molded styrofoam. To, like, that's why you got to keep them. But that's also why it didn't collapse down. It <laughs> consumes maximum space. Yeah. 
all the space. No, it's got to go. But <laughs> okay, so like my thing. Okay, so one board game boxes, mm. they're all staying. Yeah. Even if I dismount, like even if the box not being used for storage, and like most components are now living in like uh, tackle boxes huh. for easy for easy chip pull. Yeah. Um, I'm still keeping that box. Uh, because the box is part of the experience. But I'm yeah. not like I'm a collector, a curator. Uh, I can't I can't live without people. I want people to look and say like, ah, is that Fantasy Flight Games Tide of Iron? I see. I'm like, why? Well, of course it is. Would you Would you like to partake of World War Two Squad Combat? Uh, is it one and- of those thin Fantasy Flight boxes, or you know they got well, they all started it's long. To- Okay. So like as proportionally, I suppose it's thin, but <laughs> no, it's more like four feet wide. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? It's big. It's big, Kato. It's like it's it's like <laughs> 70 millimeter letterbox format uh board board gaming. But for for certain ones they they had the standard size, right? Like the Netrunner core set from 2017 and the X-Wing miniatures starter set that I have. Yeah. Are both that exact same kind of square, thin, like a it's like a two inch one and then a half yeah, inch. This is big rectangle. Oh, big no. rectangle. <laughs> uh but the so the thing Kato that I'm like holding on to, like, and we just need to get, deal with this situation. It's gotten mm-hmm. out of hand. Mm-hmm. We are holding on to all the shit that like was useful from when Mina was a puppy. We're like, well, if we ever get a second dog, oh which we no, plan on, oh no, I don't want to re- rebuy a little puppy, like a little puppy crate or a <clears throat> tiny little puppy playpen or <clears throat> any of this stuff. So now there's just like entire redundant stuff, like just crammed in the corners of the house. Because like this could be useful again in like three to five years. In the meantime, though, for three to five years, you're just moving it around. Yeah. And you're like, the stuff's occupying valuable storage space. And now, like, yeah. So, like, I understand the logic mm-hmm. of, like, I don't want to get rid of these, like, good boxes. They'll be useful for a major life event at some point. But also, uh, yeah, I I think that way lies madness. I, I, I think that I am in an odd position here because I don't have many things to move because I have only recently uh, begun living on my own. But also, I have a personal policy of to only keep objects that I legitimately need and could, if I needed to, if I needed to move, I could fit all of it in the back of a, like a, like a, like a solid sized, like, No, we get it. Like, you, you do not have anything in your life that you could not walk out on in 30 seconds flat (laughs) if you feel the heat around the corner. Exactly. Exactly. I will do it so quickly. (laughs) That's why they call, hey, listen. They call me the Robert De Niro. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, yeah, no, I like I I admire that. I just I unfortunately cannot. I'm I'm always like, this seems like a fun amusement. I now treasure it. It is one of my prized possessions and <laughs> must always remain with me forever. Uh, so yeah, that's and we don't even get to. I'll have an update about the netrunner situation developing here uh soon oh excuse me the what what now a developing netrunner situation where is it wait why you mean in your home you can't just drop that (laughs) and not later later when we're on a podcast now what's happening we'll discuss it more later oh my god i'm going Uh, to i'm going to shit what the fuck (laughs) 
Well, you heard it. <laughs> is going to shit. Uh, it's everyone is scrumming, but Patrick uh, for Bacato is old school. He's just gonna straight up shit. Uh, <laughs> There's a netrunner situation, and you're just gonna dangle that in front of me. We I swear to God, if, soon, you, if you talk if you talk about it when I'm gone, I'm gonna I'm gonna die. Cato's gonna will. be so mad they're gonna piss like a dog. <laughs> so, we just... will discuss it soon. So. Do you remember months ago, by the way, hmm. I brought up like I, I think like so many months ago, this is pre-Ren. Wow. <laughs> Pre-Ren's existence. She's not that. Yeah. Young, is like, she? Ren wasn't Ren wasn't born yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true. It's true. No, this was um, I was talking I'm about <laughs> getting duped by a bogus artisanal chocolates maker uh, in <laughs> Uh, in my town being like ooh artisanal chocolates but it's just the worst shit in history and then we're oh bagging on Mass Brothers chocolate all that stuff it's good times good times Uh huh. but then it don't start dawn on me I was like how do you know the good chocolate from the bad like how is it how does it all work and I mentioned that somebody in the gamers with jobs community uh, also in the Boston area uh, Alex is a really good uh like hobbyist uh chocolate chocolates maker and like went see him at cons just has awesome stuff but alex wrote in sort of breaking down like the tier rankings and the art and craft Ooh. of chocolatiering i think this might have also oh, been around some haunted chocolatier uh discourse that feels right anyway Wait, what? what oh the Where game the game the game <laughs> Yeah, the, the game by I mean, believe the me, Star that chocolate here I bought those things from was also a haunted <laughs> chocolate here. Like, pass that haunting on to me. Uh, anyway, Alex writes, "You asked for chocolate. Here's a whole lot about chocolatiering. Edit and pick sections as you see fit. I know this is long. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I speak as a hobbyist chocolatier, and I've been making them for 18 years." From home, the hobby doesn't require too much equipment to start. I temper chocolate using a glass bowl, a spatula, an instant read, infrared thermometer. It already sounds like we're getting a little involved, but I'm 100% getting one of those. Uh, if anything, Gourmet makes, and if, if watching Gourmet makes made, made me learn anything, is that tempering chocolate is actually impossible to do unless well, you have Soha around. Yeah, I need I, I need the infrared thermometer. Also, I was using an infrared camera to identify hot spots and some ah. like uh, griddles. It's cool. Nice. Anyway, I mean, I think it's cool. You can think whatever you want. <laughs> Fucking infrared anyway, camera. Anyway, back to Alex. I use the seed method where I melt my chocolate to 119 degrees Fahrenheit, then begin mixing in unmelted chocolate to seed proper crystal formation until it reaches 86 degrees Fahrenheit, then reheat to no more than 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The required temperatures are different for milk and white chocolate. It takes a great deal of practice. Even experienced chocolatiers will sometimes produce batches that go out of temper unexpectedly due to humidity and airflow. Mm. Once you get into the hobby, it's easy to invest plenty of money in additional tools such as caramel rollers, molds, assorted tools, and decorating supplies. But this was where Alex is also correcting us because I... Mentioned some things about like intermediate chocolate products. Like where does the chocolate that chocolatiers use come right. from? Chocolate makers are the ones who do the grinding of raw cocoa beans, conching formulation, 
and initial tempering to produce chocolate and then sell that product on to chocolatiers, bakers, and patissiers for creating candies, confections, and desserts. The chocolate makers provide profiles about their products, such as chocolate percentage, fat percentage, fluidity ratings, source of origin, and even the species of bean, which impacts flavor to an enormous degree. This process requires a lot of specialized equipment and isn't something a home hobbyist can easily take on the way you can make your own pizza dough in your kitchen. In a typical holiday season, I make chocolates as gifts for my family and friends, and I'll buy 20 to 30 pounds of chocolate to produce 600 to 700 pieces. I'm buying in increments of 2.5 to 5 kilograms of ready-tempered chocolate, typically through a restaurant supplier, though there are now online supply stores as well. It's far cheaper than buying off the shelf from a grocery store, and the wrapped chocolate bars at grocery stores aren't what I want for this use. As a hobbyist, I usually take a week of vacation to accomplish my efforts, and I'll put 70 to 80 hours in for the week. Some of that is decorating as I airbrush my molds with colored cocoa butter or create transfer sheets to apply patterns to slab ganaches. The rest is split between tempering chocolate and making the centers, often some form of flavored ganaches, uh, but could be many other kinds of candy filling. And actually right here, I'm going to pop into the email and just pull some of the uh, visual aids that Alex Ooh. sent along. Uh, because I think I think you need to know that like, Alex is legit. Um, and Kato, I think you will, I think you especially will appreciate uh, some of Alex's efforts here. Let me see. Uh, bah, bah, bah. Let me see the chocolate. Why do you sound hey, do you kind like of Dota? Like- <laughs> Jesus Christ. God damn it. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, that looks nice. They did a good job there. That's the yeah, that's the Dota. That's the Dota logo on a chocolate. What? What's maybe like a little Fortnite? Is that number one victory? Oh, it's about Fortnite. We're about to get down. Get down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, so like like Alex makes like legitimately like delicious truffles. Uh, and that are also like lovingly decorated um, and and really intricate. They're they're gorgeous. Um, if you'd like to know about cacao bean uh, cacao bean types, read on here. We will, Alex. Hey, waypoint <laughs> listener, do you want to read about? Do you want to hear about cacao, cacao bean beans? types? You're about to. There are four primary types of cacao beans, and they have I'm significantly so <laughs> different taste profiles. Forastero are the most common comprising 80% of all chocolate in the world, an increase from 70% only a decade or two ago. This is because Forastero is the most resistant to fungi and diseases than the other varieties, and typically the trees grow to maturity in fewer years. The cocoa is more bitter and less complex. When you're eating a mass-market chocolate or candy bar, it is almost certainly made with Forastero beans. Man, that is, isn't that the way, right? That, you know, we get the most rugged, the most ready for mass manufacture. So true. Criollo is generally considered the prize bean. They have complex flavor profiles and more aromatic qualities, but uh, Criollo trees aren't as hardy and are susceptible to disease, so only contribute less than 5% of all cacao right now. Trinitario is a crossbreed between Forrester and Criollo, named after its birthplace in Trinidad. Uh, it has the benefits of better flavor than Forrester while being hardier than Criollo. Uh, some sources. Pardon? Criollo, double L, right? I oh assume. yeah, I mean, like I was, I was definitely anglicizing mm. the shit out of it for <laughs> sure. Um, 
Some sources will point out uh, Nacional, a rare variety in Peru and Ecuador, thought to be wiped out in the 1930s, but recently found to still exist in a small number of trees. Uh, there are sub-varieties of each and constant crossbreeding to try and stay ahead of disease, but those are the four general types. Regarding Rob's comment on chocolatiering offering a good margin, did I make a comment? Anyway, I'm sure I you did. You must have. It is a tough business, one I considered and elected not to pursue. The cost of ingredients for high-quality chocolate are significant, special equipment, uh, and then it still requires a high level of labor. I'm only a hobbyist, so I don't have the kinds of equipment that could save some time, but my pieces can cost between uh, 25 cents to 50 cents for ingredients. Add in equipment, labor, packaging, marketing, and the occasional mistempered batch that cannot be sold, and a store to sell them. Each piece of chocolate needs to sell for a high price just to break even. Chefs or shops that succeed in creating a name for themselves can do quite well, but there seems to be limited room for competition. A single small chocolate shop will scale up by adding special equipment such as tempering machines and a guitar cutter uh, in order to reduce labor costs and improve consistency. These will cost from high hundreds to many thousands of dollars each. They want molded chocolates for any shape other than square rectangle. The polycarbonate molds typically cost 30 to 50 bucks each. And we'll each provide 15 to 40 cavities. I don't like that word, cavities. Hmm. Let's just say molds. Anyway, you need, a, you need a lot to produce an adequate amount of product. Uh, so that is the world of chocolate. There's a lot there I didn't really think about. Yeah. Hey, uh, we here at Waypoint are lifelong learners. And we're always saying this. The... The whole thing is a mold. The whole thing is a mold. And the place where you oh. actually place the stuff is the cavity. So really? Just, yeah. Yeah. Works, works that way in sculpture oh, and art yeah. when you're making like master molds and shit. Need more just cavities. What it, just what it is. You gotta, gotta get more cavities. Mm. <laughs> Ironically, of course, you know what that chocolate will turn into. Oh my God, uh, Rob. That's cavities. so true. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, the point is, so maybe I have a little more sympathy for that guy who sold me like the shitty chocolates, but also just trying. Also, if you're not up to get to Alex's level. I don't think you should be showing up at the farmer's market being like, check out my artisanal chocolates. Also, it's like, no. What do we know what happens when chocolate isn't tempered correctly? Isn't it just like. Slightly weird looking, but still tastes good. <laughs> like, it's, but I think the texture is also bad. No, because yeah. like. The thing is, so it is weird. Like, I got badly tempered chocolate where it was like mottled, right? Mm. Um, where it almost looked like, uh, what's we put this? It almost looked like some of the fat was coming out of solution in the chocolate uh, once it had set. And so uh-huh. you had like weird, like white patches, right? Right. Uh, yeah. on the chocolate. And so the entire thing, like, had sort of a weird, like, unappetizing looking, like, spotted pattern. And then the texture itself just was not appetizing right Mm -hmm. it was like um it wasn't smooth in any way Mm -hmm. uh so i think that's part of it i do i do think also if if you're doing stuff like alex is doing where you're like making uh like truffles and such i gotta believe if you don't get it right some of the stuff you're making just structurally will not hold up right right in transit we're like I wonder, like, how hard is it to make the kind of chocolate where somebody leaves the candy box out at room temperature? You want to be sure that that stuff's going to be still, like, easily right. handled, not melting in your hand. Uh, like, if somebody gets to it two hours later, I don't know how good you have to be to guarantee that, right? Um, so I, I wonder if that's part of it, too. 
I definitely know if I were a chocolatier, I'd, I'd be like, hey, you know, my chocolates are special. Uh, you should keep them in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Should. Doesn't that also cause them Business to fucking mastermind. break, though? What? I thought freezing them also caused that, that exact molting oh, probably. looking stuff. Probably. I don't know. Probably. I feel like I've never had a bad chocolate. Maybe I just got lucky. But even the weird, the ones with the weird spots, that's fine. It's chocolate. It's tasty. I mean, maybe you sort of have pizza rules about chocolate, you know, where it's like <laughs> even bad chocolates are chocolate. That's, uh, well, yes, that is true. Uh, I don't know. There are there are there are some bad pizzas out there in the world. There are. We had a bunch of them uh, when we were down in New York. <laughs> we had one of them, and the other one was great. I don't know what you're oh talking my, about. Oh my, we're not we're not going back. And they weren't no. even cheaper than the nice pizzas. It's the wildest part of all this. When all was said and done, wasn't cheaper. No, it was not like ah, uh, this is the pizza, pizza of the people. No. That's why that's why they don't really exist. <laughs> that's why it was hard to find a place that would deliver to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh here's an email that says niche warning. <laughs> Abraham <laughs> writes to the carbonated water enthusiasts oh, at fuck. Waypoint. Ah oh, shit. All right. This is so this is so bonkers, and it's like this is the thing that's going to ruin my life someday, Kyle. Oh no. So oh, let's hell yeah. <laughs> let's let's get into this. Abraham writes First time, long time, compelled to write in after hearing your discussion of the uh wonky yet undoubtedly refreshing business of delivery seltzer. Mm. I I, too, enjoy the biting pleasure of bubbles, and after moving to a part of the world where quality carbonated water is not readily available, I decided to take matters into my own hands. Mm. Nice. Old-style glass seltzer bottles sound nice, but what if you could control, with a combination of time, temperature, and pressure, exactly the type of carbonation in your beverage? I'll miss you, Rob. I'm not talking about the dilettantes soda stream wow what i found is a much more cost what i found is much more cost effective inspired by food science writer writer dave arnold i have a two kilogram co2 tank (laughs) under the sink (laughs) fitted with a regular regulator and a hose that terminates in a quick connector designed to fit the threads of a standard soda bottle Simply fill the bottle with your liquid of choice, pop on the connector, and just a few shakes, you have something no store-bought product can replicate. However, if you were looking to replicate something store-bought, chemist Martin Lersch has done the Lord's work of detailing the concentrations of readily available mineral salts in all the common branded waters. His spreadsheet, which I've linked below, even (laughs) includes formulae. For cloning the municipal waters of Munich and Pilsen to more ap- accurately replicate <laughs> their styles of beer. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh the my best God. part is just how incredibly cheap the process can be. The equipment costs less than a soda stream. The CO2 is about 160th of what soda stream charges. And when purchased in 500 gram bags, the half dozen or so minerals will last me years. It really goes to show what a colossal sham the bottled water industry is. I hope this 
opened up some possibilities for you. Oh, fuck. Take control of your own carbonation. Abraham. I'm going to become the water joker. (laughs) The way that email ended sounded like it was trying to incite us to political action. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, obviously, like, I get off this fucking apartheid water that I'm drinking (laughs) by a soda stream. Oh, no. Oh. By the way, Emmanuel shared with me some very upsetting information about Chloe. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah? More no, upsetting? I'm sure. The claw I'm sure. machines are housed in a warehouse. Uh, uh-huh. Just a stone's throw from the West Bank. Oh, uh, And Emmanuel just sent me a text. He was like, I hope I hope Patrick enjoys his little apartheid plushies. <laughs> um, so, you Jesus. know, there's good reasons to, like, Penis. there's a lot of reasons not to want to, like, do business with uh, the likes of SodaStream. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, let's be real here. This is just a this is also just an open door to a better life. Yeah. For all of us. This sounds great. Listen, I'm legitimately deeply into just doing things. Wow, the fucking custom keyboard bitch is the one who's like, I think doing things in your own home is cool. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I might do this. This sounds neat. Yeah. Why, why is the custom keyboard bitch Jor- Jordan Peterson? <laughs> <laughs> no, if I was Jordan Peterson, I would say... The lo- the woke left does not want you to build keyboards, nor do they want you to prepare your own water. <laughs> what rules? <laughs> A message to membrane keyboard users. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we're just now we're just Fuck. going down the shit post rabbit hole. This really makes sense to people who like live a good, normal, wholesome life. Uh, but the point is. This email, like, has been sitting in the inbox for a while, and I, I just need to speak it out loud. Yeah. So they're going to be like, Zachney, just wave off. Don't, don't, go, don't do this. No, I think we're all diving in. We're going no, with we're you. All we're doing all doing this. In this. <laughs> we're all in this together. Because you ever think I won't about, tell like, you no, because I'm saying yes. I'm There's also- some bottled waters that you're just like, I feel like a better person when I have this. And it can be, like, fancy, where it's like, ooh, Pellegrino, I'm fancy. But it could also just be... Man, I got way too drunk. Thank you, Bodega Place, with the smart water that's the size of an artillery <laughs> shell. Yeah. Uh, you're here to save my life. And I could just, like, with these, just with that. these, with this spreadsheet, I could just create, like, where in the world do I want to go? I need what a water. I need which- a second spreadsheet that is the formulation of all the LaCroix <laughs> flavors. Because that's my that's my thing right now is going through easily two cases a week of and no more cans. Yeah, this no is the big cans. thing. No more cans. There's, I have so many cans. I've I, become like, a if, little can gremlin in the past couple couple of months. And, you're, and the weird thing is, you're saving those cans for later, and nobody knows why. You're like, I might move from my apartment someday. <laughs> I, I what if I what if I got rid of all these the cans? Can. No, I, yeah, recycle, I'm recycling good. the cans. <laughs> I can oh, still use a lot structural reinforcement. Uh, but yeah, like so this like this this could all be us. Mm. Like living without waste, without doing business with like you know, companies we might oppose. <laughs> uh, and we could also be like world travelers. You know, in these mm-hmm. times it's not easy to travel the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so true. But what if what if like, you know, 
for instance, if y'all were visiting my home, I'd be like, hey, who wants to take a little trip to some restoring springs in the south of France? And I just open up the spreadsheet. And we'd sit there and we'd dump our little mineral granules into oh the water God. at at voila. Well, no, 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 my guest. You must crush your own minerals. It's part of the experience. <laughs> yes, Here's exactly. your mortar and pestle. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rand. I won't I won't make your I will not deny you this. Oh, it's 90 degrees outside and you're thirsty? Uh well, just imagine how much sweeter this water will taste if you wanted it to taste sweet. Once you crush these minerals into your into your vessel, I feel like there's still a component missing though to really get that authentic uh, world traveling experience. Like, what about all the all, all the all the bacteria, all the different things that mm, live in so water true. all over the world? No, it's not, Ren. It's not. Kato. No, no, we have to buy bye. You know they treat water in other places, <laughs> right? Go to, the, go to the internet <laughs> and start buying bacteria yeah. online. It doesn't get 100% of the stuff. There's I still some stuff in there. I think puts you on a new list. <laughs> like, I think, they, I think if you <laughs> Google how to buy bacteria, you get put on a new list. They're making a new list just for me. Old. Yeah. Here's Kato trying to destroy the water infrastructure of a major American city. I'm uh, becoming the water joker. Lab lab leak Contreras. <laughs> um all right. So we also got Kyle, this is relevant to you and I, speaking of becoming mm. a joker, being little gremlins. Great. <laughs> uh John Rennish writes in Your recent discussion about F1 management and the mystery of how gas usage varied during your ill fated race kept me intrigued. Was the simulation <laughs> flawed? Did the simulation include sabotage? Or, based on later information, was the simulation properly modeling the impact of drafting on fuel usage? When Kato said there's plenty of fuel while in the middle of the pack, but not when the driver pulled out, it clicked the mystery into place for me. Good luck with future races, John. Ah, oh, really that much? That's a good point. I feel you like... You didn't think about I feel like partially, driving the pack. Yeah, I feel like it might be that, and also, on top of that, hybrid mode might have been engaged for a little bit. Yes. Uh, the thing that we weren't really actively microing before. But now we a- are. <laughs> and it made night and day difference. Like, Kyle and I have solved our motorsports manager problems. Yeah, we're we great. are now... Um, okay, so, yes. Yes. But... I think it is possible we're being too aggressive on like, trying to make people drive on tires too long it's yeah possible that's an issue well see we're trying to make up for deficiencies in our car by being like but we can stay out there longer and therefore y'all y'all are gonna have to pit but we won't we'll, yeah. we'll stay out there forever that doesn't happen it doesn't doesn't work anymore. it doesn't work you have you need gas you need tires break you have to go back well, we have to go back the other <laughs> thing uh that i'm sort of thinking about just in the fate of our game Kyle, I have a little confession to make. Yeah? I don't know what happens when we finish the season, multiple millions in the hole. (laughs) I have been assuming uh. that there might be, like, so in Formula One, you get a payout based on where you finish in the standings of the Mm. overall, like, revenue share agreement for Formula One. Uh And so every team kind of goes back in the black uh, once that payment is dispersed. Mm. Okay. I've just been assuming that our <laughs> fictional little sports car league operates the same rules and right. 
you know, being four million in the hole, once we get our end, uh, surely we'll be a million in the black. Yeah, surely that they're gonna give us they're gonna give us money just for being here. Right. That's how this works. But it occurs to me I might be wrong. And uh <laughs> so even if we save our jobs for the season, I don't know what awaits us next year. You just yeah. The funniest outcome is we start next season four million in the hole. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that would be I'd be so thrilled. Oh god. Uh need two pay drivers. Please. Uh, <laughs> So, our last, we got a couple really terrific emails. Remember we were talking about, uh, we were talking about Overwatch 2, but then also how do, like, slower-paced team games like World of Warships end up handling uh, stuff like skill ceiling and also having that dovetail with um, with sort of the way they support themselves is not as uh, one-time sale products, but as, uh, you know, massive free-to-play games. So first, Jason uh, writes in with the filthy casuals uh, view of the current state of World of Warships. <laughs> hey, waypointalists, I don't play World of Warships much and haven't in a while, but I'll probably be back someday here. So I feel bizarrely well placed to answer your question about the appeal of the game to non-pros. First, World of Warships has none of these sanctimonious new era feelings about pl- uh, play to win mechanics or pay to win mechanics. You can buy boats, ammo, and a variety of modifications that will give you an unambiguous, though not always decisive, edge in a fight. Hmm. This can be annoying, of course, and the company pushes sales and premium memberships for XP boosters and such on you everywhere, but the unfairness naturally reduces the density of people who would otherwise be on everyone's ass for sucking, uh, (laughs) were it actually an even playing field. (laughs) uh that's an interesting thought that never occurred to me that like just like if you're just a dipshit but like you got a little money to throw at your fucking make-believe warships you can hang with better players just because like on the (laughs) off chance you eventually land a shot it'll do like multiples of damage Oh, my God. Uh, Second, everything about World of Warships rewards you for slowing down, thinking about what to do instead of getting a split second scraps. The maps are so big. Maneuvering is so slow uh, that even the fastest destroyers can't just U-turn their way out of an overextension. You have literal uh, 30 second honest to God, uh, 30 literal honest to God seconds between battleship cannon salvos to decide where to aim the next batch. The strategic and tactical skill ceiling on this stuff is quite high. But the execution ceiling is low, low enough that occasionally I still touch it as a mid 30 year old who wasn't even good at shooters when I was supposed to be. Uh, finally, and a mechanical accession, uh, extension of the second point, you can sit back and watch the fireworks without letting your team down. Uh, once you plot a course or shoot a shot, a lot of the time you've exhausted the buttons you need to press in a given situation. You can keep scouting and scheming if you want, but you're also free to nurse some scotch while you wait for the next uh, next batch of rounds to arc over the horizon towards their target. As opposed to a game like Overwatch uh, with hitscan weapons where each click succeeds or fails on the basis of your human frailties, each shell coming out of a battleship gives you a ballistic lottery ticket to hold for a few seconds. Is there some bullshit involved in the outcome? Absolutely. And that's part of the fun. The stochastic model is similar to the one in Company of of Heroes, another game I adore for its randomness that tends to wash out the more hot-headed, tournament-oriented reflex havers. 
The reverse is also true and equally vital. If you're about to get smoked, the torpedo or bomb responsible has probably been in your field of view or on its way to you for several seconds. This little <laughs> window gives you time to reflect on your mistakes, accept your fate, <laughs> and massage the gamer rage out of your system in a way the kill cam after a headshot never does. In conclusion, hit scan is for whiny babies. Cheers, Jason. <laughs> Oh Hold God. on, Red. We gotta go. We gotta. We gotta take to the <laughs> I, sea. Oh, Rob, I was. I was listening, and I was like, I'd, I gotta get me some of this ocean. <laughs> uh, but that does remind me. The, the thing my company of heroes. I forgot to mention this. This comes up on the three MA interview, but they mentioned that um, early on, this is kind of a fundamental thing. The original designer company of heroes, Quinn Duffy. Um, because your little models are running around, they take cover. They have a real, real realistic looking firefight. There is a bit of randomness where if you take two squads of infantry from two different factions and have them fight, the fight's outcome will have slightly different. There's like a band of outcomes that can happen, even if the terrain and positioning never does change. It's just there might be with shots. Um, and so like DPS is not a guarantee with these units. Um, there's still there's still little error bars around how they're going to perform. And it's always been a topic of debate where it's like, well, pro players would really like to have this stuff like nailed down so that it does exactly the same thing every time. And sort of foundational company of heroes is like, fuck them. <laughs> it's, it's like, no, nope, it's going to be j- not very, but just a little loosey goosey. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that probably is good for once you eliminate the idea that it can be like that that level of precision exists. And like that you can like theory craft that endlessly. I think that's that's an interesting approach. Uh and it's interesting they've done it with um the projectile model in World of Warships. Yeah. That's that's really neat and interesting. Um so somebody wrote in an incredible World of Warship State of the Union. Mm-hmm. I I worry I've already imposed too much on your patience. <laughs> Who? Whose patience? The listeners' patience? Our the patience? Listeners Yours, patience? the listeners, like we're f- I'm did, fine. Did chocolate break y'all? No, no, I'm just hanging out. This listen, I'm on a podcast. We're golden. What what's All going right. on? Let's dig into West Livesey's uh twenty twenty two World of Warships update. <laughs> By the way, check out Wes's uh, History of the Great War podcast. It's a it's a really good uh, podcast talking about World War One, uh, and it's one of those things where a bit like with uh, the Mike Duncan stuff, you know, first dozen episodes you're like, "Yep, pretty rough amateur effort," and then after that, you're like, "This guy's gotten really good," and this has become a legit like terrific podcast. So uh, recommended uh, on that front as well. Uh, so here we go from Wes. Listening to the most re- recent Waypoint podcast, this is not the most recent, again, you have to project back. <laughs> yeah. Rob had the question of whether or not Wargaming's games, and particularly World of Warships, had maintained uh, its quite unique position of being an online game that did not put an emphasis on APM, uh, the ability to 360 no-scope, and was more focused on lengthier decision cycles and more structured combat. Uh, the answer is both yes and no. Uh, TLDR, he gives a little executive summary up here at the top. The explanation below got quite long, so adding a summary. Uh, yes, in general, the core gameplay of World of Warships remains in, in a place that is much slower than most online competitive shooters. Often the choice that kills you was not made one to two seconds, but 20 to 30 seconds or more before your end. 
However, recent game developments have quite drastically shifted the game sandbox away from its easy-to-parse roots as the game has constantly expanded its roster of ships and added new ship types. This has made the game harder to parse for players, shifted the overall gameplay away from its previous core positioning and area denial, and strained the historical grounding that has played such a major part in the game's marketing strategy over the years. I am going to assume that Rob's experiences with Wargames offerings were a bit in the past, but the basic structure of World of Warships remains how he probably remembers it. The game involves ships that move across the map quite slowly, which gives the player the ability to consider decisions to be made, and then make those decisions without a lot of time pressure. The overall combat of the game also remains less frantic than most online shooters due to the projectile nature of the weapons in the game, with long-range gunfire taking several seconds to reach its destination and torpedoes even taking longer. However, over the last several years, there have been many changes made by Wargaming that have complicated the game's core sandbox in ways that both complicate how the player needs to parse information, but also has broken the fronts that used to exist within the game. The core complication that Wargaming has experienced is that their revenue is, and has always been, based on players buying ships. Cosmetics and premium uh, time are offered, but ship purchases must drive a substantial amount of revenue, with ships costing upwards of $100 at the highest tiers. I would not pay $100 for a world... Hundred dollars for a World of Warship ship? A hundred U.S. dollars out of my pocket? Kata, why are you normalizing this? Well, I'm not normalizing. I was gonna say, sound doesn't sound as bad when you hear some of the prices on fucking uh, what was it called? That fucking space game, the space game. Oh well, Star Star Citizen. Citizen? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh well. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But I mean, like that. But that was always a blatant. uh, Hang on, I don't want to say anything legally actionable here. Oh, yes. Its its value proposition was Uh always very clear from the start. Uh, But I suppose what are you what are you you saying about the $40 chip I bought in Star Citizen like 10 years ago? (laughs) How long has Uh, uh, as World of Warships has grown older? This has caused a problem because this forced Wargaming to introduce new ships while also trying not to completely destroy the historical framework in which the game is based. In its early years, the game was able to pull heavily from some of the more expected areas of naval combat between 1900 and 1945, giving players access to a set of ship trees that contained many ships that did exist at the time and were used in combat. This allowed players to play through the evolution of British cruisers or American destroyers or Japanese battleships, along with many others. This attracted many players who really valued that historical grounding, but very rapidly there was a problem. The number of ships that were actually constructed in the first 50 years of the 20th century is a pretty small number, especially when you take into account that there would be many ships of the same class. More troubling was that even within the small number of available historical options, variations were small. Many navies were approaching the problems of naval warfare in ways that were similar enough not to have a major game impact. For example, in many ways, the core ideas of the battleships built after the collapse of the naval treaty system after 1936 are all the same. They only differ in the details. To solve both of these problems, Wargaming made three changes. They began to expand the nations represented in the game to rely far more heavily on paper ships or ships that never made it past the design phase, and they leaned heavily into giving each line of ships a differentiator. None of these changes were a problem in and of themselves, but as Wargaming continued to diversify the offerings within each type of ship, it made the game progressively more difficult for a new player to parse. What was once a question of, is that ship a destroyer, cruiser, or battleship, turned into, 
is that battleship over there one of the ones with a smoke screen torpedoes really good secondary weapons speed boost a squadron of torpedo planes etc well this actually begins to sound like overwatch to be quite honest uh i think all this diversification just in general makes the game more complicated but not in a good way Along with introducing a greater numbers, a number of ships of the original classes, destroyers, cruisers, and battleships, Wargaming's also introduced two new classes, aircraft carriers and submarines, uh, kind of inevitably, probably. How many different battleships do you need? There are currently, se- there are currently 17 tier 10 battleships. Uh, these additions are the hot button topic within the world of warships community in 2022 because they break the previous sandbox in many ways, both large and small. Aircraft carriers do what you'd expect, provide the player of uh, the option of controlling a dive bomber, fighter, or torpedo bomber strike group, uh, which they can take across the map in a third-person view to attack other ships. The challenge with aircraft carriers that Wargaming spent several years uh, trying to work their way through is that being on the receiving end of a carrier attack can feel very frustrating. Strike aircraft appear, attack your ship, and leave. And there's very little you can do in response other than to hit the button to focus your anti-aircraft armament. Uh, This frustrating interaction might be the most historically accurate thing in the entire game, but that doesn't mean it makes it much fun. It took them years of patch cycles uh, to balance around that frustration to try and make carriers just as roaring to play, but less frustrating to play against. The newer addition, and still in the testing phases, is submarines. Submarines have also been through several full redesigns over the last year, again, as Wargaming tries to find a way to make them work on both sides of the interaction. The interaction can be even more frustrating uh, on both sides, as a good submarine captain can 100 and uh, 100 to zero uh, without there being any recourse, while even slightly less skilled captains uh, feel like they can't do anything about being depth charged at the bottom of the sea. These new classes are interesting and fun to play, but they have had the same effect that I think uh, some of the changes in Battlefield 2042 had uh, that Rob alluded to on the podcast. Both aircraft and submarines are front ignorers. They circumvent the positioning and area denial mechanics that are at the core of destroyer, cruiser, and battleship gameplay. No matter how perfectly you position your ship based on the location of enemy surface vessels, you can at any time be on the receiving end of an air attack or submarine attack, no matter where you are on the map or where enemy service ships might be positioned. Uh, in conclusion, I think if Rob jumped back into World of Warships today, he would still find the game roughly the same as he remembers it, uh, especially at lower tiers or early in the uh, progression system. Uh, the game still fits within the same box as it did years ago, but as you get deeper into the game, I think it becomes more clear that Wargaming is struggling against the historical box they set for themselves with the first several years of game's content. So much of the core gameplay loop for most of the ships in the game is based around a variety of 1916-esque uh, views of what naval combat should be. Ships sailing around, getting in gun range, duking it out, while dodging the occasional torpedo. But due to World of Warships' monetization structure, a structure shared by other Wargaming titles and by their closest competitor, War Thunder, Wargaming seems to be really be struggling to introduce new and interesting content without just pushing into an entirely different game. Uh... I think we'll leave it there. Um, but that is, I had sort of wondered where that was all going to play out. Cause I do mm-hmm. remember the last I checked on it, they were unveiling basically ever more sick paint jobs for <laughs> traditional world war two battleships. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like 
the fact that now they, they're starting to break up their core archetypes to try to create variety within the archetypal classes reminds me a lot of like TF2 also in its late days, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, uh, what if the sniper didn't fire a sniper rifle anymore, but kind of could become arrow. sort of a rapid fire archer? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, actually, the, the, the kind of talk about the like, um, submarines and aircraft being able to like get behind lines remind me a lot of uh you know feelings around the spy like the, the class mm-hmm. that can go invisible you know get the sniper behind spy update for me like that is the watershed in tf2 yeah. uh and it's just like it feels it feels odd to try to insert that into something that is so positionally based and also i assume uh I don't actually know. Like, what does does a match play out in that? Like, if you your bomb your your ship gets blown up, that's that's it. Are you respawning? Like, oh is no, this it's a like sort of ship 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 gone. You're gone. Ship gone. You're gone. Like the part of the thing that makes the getting backstabbed by a spy in TF2 less frustrating is that fact that you will be back in ten seconds. Uh, or five, honestly, or none, depending on the server you're playing on, right? Um, there is uh, a lot less at stake on that specific goal, that specific piece of out being quote unquote outmaneuvered uh, on the like effect of the entire match, right? Like you're not just gonna outright lose, but in this situation, it feels like having that sort of positional advantage feels huge when everyone else is on a. On playing with the assumptions that like they they generally know they have a general sense of of the map like lay a lot the 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 field of play right like those two things circumventing that sort of stuff feels hard to balance around um Mm -hmm. yeah uh i do find it very funny that they have backdoored themselves into being like Ah, fuck, turns out uh, submarines and aircraft carriers did kind of break naval combat (laughs) historically. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Turns out they weren't just bad at it. Oh, no. Oh, no. That part is so funny because, yeah, yeah, like, I think I want to, I don't know if it was something that ended up being my original review of the game. But, yeah, like, World of Warships is a fantasy land where all these, like, awesome weapons of war the theory was not abruptly disproven in the 1930s where it's like all of this is irrelevant. Like none of these ships are going to function the way they were designed. And yeah, they end up just like in the process of like, okay, well we need some more variety. We need to keep expanding the offerings in this game. Aircraft carriers. Wonder what that will do. (laughs) What could, what could an aircraft carrier do in a game about battleships? If only we had some examples to <laughs> yeah. kind of pull for. If only there was some there was some kind of record that would kind of gesture at what this would do. Well, hit the button. Yep. <laughs> That's not how um, game development works. But and being the sort of game where it's like you're one ship, you're going into a match, and like then you're you die, you're out. It feels like a lot of the the ways that those sort of like stealth or alternate uh sort of attack pattern things get can get uh balanced is around like resource costs to build in like an rts for example right like things like that you can but there those levers don't exist here right like it's just like you are the ship that you are right there's no there's no way to limit that any other way other than like just make the guns worse or something or like you know limit the the other things but 
there's no balance to be found in the way that it would cost more to make a submarine than certain ships, right? Just because mm-hmm. it's a more compl- complicated thing to be a ship underwater. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, and like, it, it is just one of those... If your game never had a stealth aspect before, <laughs> and then just dropping one of those in the middle uh, seems a really dicey proposition, right? Yeah. Like the that the game was defined by like, yeah, some some ships are more visible uh, on the map in terms of like line of sight. Like I think destroyers, you had to be much. Clo- I, I feel like it sort of did a fuzzy thing where, um both because they were smaller, but also I think like they wouldn't appear uh, on screen necessarily until you were within a certain uh, distance. And then the model would sort of pop in. Um, Like I I feel like destroyers were a little bit like they were the closest you had to a stealth ship, but really it was more that they just like had a really low profile. Mm. Um, And then the other thing the destroyers did was they deployed smoke screens that would then control line of sight. So they they kind of worked both sides of that uh, like, dynamic and that's all good but then you're like okay well into that balance i'm going to inject something that just ignores line of sight rules and mm-hmm. is going to be invisible that's that's dicey i'm i am curious how it's all played out but at the same time you know we could just be chilling on the high seas chatting just watching shots <laughs> go over the horizon who knows Oh, I would did love to hit? play. I would love not? to play Sea of Thieves again. Man, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Now that's a ship combat game. God, our greatest battle was us firing into a kraken. <laughs> I mean, it was good. It was great. Like once we got the range on that kraken, that was <laughs> that was that was great. That was that was that was. Once you ran, ran away from the kraken. And World of Warships does not have hurdy gurdies. Um, yeah, so, come on, you can't you can't yeah. play the sad song as you as you scuttle your ship. Oh man, <laughs> good times, good times. Uh, all right, so I think I think we've slurped enough from the question bucket. Ah, <laughs> oh, our bellies are all full from all the slurping. Belly uh, full of questions. <laughs> yeah, and, and soon and, and soon we need to cool. satisfy our mighty thirst with custom custom made water we're going to hot rod our water situations at our homes uh so i look for look forward to that as well first waypoint built a keyboard now we're building water yeah listen my roommate has uh her bike and i've got my co2 kit Well, that is a wrap on today's episode. Uh, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook, and YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me at Rob Zachney on Twitter. Uh, Ren, where can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Ren or Raven. Ricardo. At A underscore Cato underscore appears. You can also go check out what we've published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, I highly recommend, in addition to Ren's uh, piece on Gwent, Patrick's piece on Embracer Group's attempt to build an all-encompassing video game archive in Sweden. And it's a piece that touches on questions of preservation, curation, and Embracer's ambiguous place in the game's landscape. Uh, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've also been having a blast with streams this week. Ren and Kato fed their fascination with Zectronics by getting into Opus Magnum the alchemical engineering game. Uh, Kato and I also had a very special Motorsports Monday that <laughs> featured a photo finish. 
God. you should be sure you should be sure to check out the next motorsport motorsport Monday next week because things are coming down to the wire at Oberhof Racing. And uh yeah, as I alluded to with Kato earlier, I made some more dangerous assumptions uh, <laughs> about how things are going to play out at the end of the season that I think were justified. For our Waypoint yeah. Plus listeners, the Manhunting crew recorded what might be uh, our best episode yet on Michael Mann's uh, The Insider, his 1999 film, about a tobacco whistleblower whose segment on 60 Minutes touched off a scandal at CBS and revealed the fragility of journalism under corporate role. That'll be airing next week. Uh, if all that sounds good or if you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to a premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com to buy <laughs> some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone/boen. Uh, for now, we are calling time on this week. We will talk to you again next week. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.